and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Eric Dunn, CEO of Quicken, one of the largest personal finance software companies in the US with over 17 million clients and also one of the original fintech brands that was launched over 30 years ago. In this episode, we discuss Eric's career and why he decided to join into it in 1986 as employee number four, becoming an investor and his reflections from a few years he spent in venture capital and how it made him a better operator after the fact, Quicken's journey and some of their challenges and reflections from over 35 years, thought process behind Intuit's decision to spin off Quicken, his management approach and frameworks Eric uses to make strategic company decisions, analysis of a fast-growing fintech space, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy this interesting conversation with Eric Dunn. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast, and welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great and delighted to be here and talk about Quicken and Simplify. Absolutely. We are delighted to hear more and hear about your career trajectory. And, and maybe that's where we can get started, right? We'd love to hear about your own journey sure. and you know how your career has evolved over the last few decades. Sure. I grew up on the East Coast, but I had the good fortune to move to Silicon Valley in 1983, just as the personal computer revolution was kind of kicking off. I was initially employed by Bain & Company, but I had the good luck to fall in with the founders of Intuit, Scott Cook and Tom Prue, in the mid-80s. So I joined that company as uh, chief financial officer and C-coder at the same time when it was four people in a basement in Palo Alto. And at that time, Quicken Software, PC-based personal finance, was what the company did, what Intuit did. And it was a different landscape back then. You know, you have to think hard to find out who was doing fintech? There were a couple of other personal finance products on PCs. You know, there were some payroll companies like ADP and Control Data, but there just there wasn't an ecosystem of uh, technology companies interacting with people's finances in the same way. And it was a very different consumer environment. The whole world was paper-based, paper-based statements, paper checks. So we lived the evolution in the kind of in the financial services industry. You know, since then over the 35 years. And also, you know, seeing the whole fintech industry kind of stand up during that period of time. It's been a very exciting, fun, enjoyable three and a half decades for me to be part of this. Yeah, definitely a lot to talk about. But before we dive deeper into Intuit and then especially Quicken, maybe you can tell us about a short stint that I think you had in venture capital. Is that correct? Absolutely. So I had 10 years out from being in the uh, software business from 2000 to 2010. I retired from Intuit and I was an angel investor for three years, investing under the name Kingston Creek Ventures and made eh, a couple dozen angel investments, some of which you know, were pretty successful. I think Square Trade and PayCycle were a couple of the more notable successes there. And then in 2003, I joined the venture capital firm Cardinal Ventures. And uh, I was, uh, I would say I was a successful investor 
in a unfortunately unsuccessful fund. I was uh, led the Series C at a company called Success Factors, which went public and then was acquired by SAP for $3.7 billion. So that was a great outcome. And I uh, also led the Series C at Adaptive Insight, which was an, another you know, billion-dollar outcome for in terms of the overall you know, market cap of the company. So some big successes, uh, but the, the fund, for a variety of reasons, you know, didn't survive to turn into a uh, – the firm didn't, didn't raise another fund. So by the end of the decade, I was open to new ideas. And so that's how I ended up back at it to it. But I would say during between my angel investing and venture investing, I probably probably invested in 40 or 50 you know, private companies. And I've continued to do maybe 50 of private companies, continue to make angel investments even in my current career and serve on the boards of private companies. And it's just it's been fascinating, interesting, and intellectually rewarding, and occasionally financially rewarding as well. So it's been fun. <laughs> and how do you think it changed you as a professional into it pre-VC and in you going back, you know, with some lessons learned? Well, it's super helpful to have been on kind of both sides of a you know a boardroom table, so to speak. You know, to be in the investor role to be in the CEO role and also to be in the back in the investor role again. I would say, actually, it's probably most helpful to me in as a board member to have served as a CEO because you get visibility into you know, how, how carefully managed the relationship between a board and a CEO has to be to really work well. And a board member, we have great board members at our company, a board member who provides encouragement and a light touch and adds energy is such a gift and a board member who is uh, nitpicking and directive can be such a drag. And so, you know, trying to you know, learn from what I've seen around, you know, dozens and dozens of, you know, boardrooms over the decades and, and apply that to my behavior as an investor, I think it's been super helpful. I think at the same time, you know, having been an investor gives me kind of a sense of realism about, you know, when running my own company about what the limits are. Obviously, they're in there ultimately to make money for their investors in turn. And uh, the qualitative factors are important and the reputational factors are important. But, you know, I understand kind of how they do the math and, you know, what they're trying to optimize for. So, so having visibility into their calculus is, has been helpful to me as a CEO. So, Eric, let's talk a bit about Quicken, right? I mean, you mentioned you joined as employee number four back in 86. So, you know, there's no denying that Quicken is one of the OGs of fintech, right? Uh, I mean, the, the war didn't even exist uh, back then. And, and you've not only survived throughout all this time, but if the company has actually grown and, and it's, it's widely adopted. It's, it's a name that's known across the country, uh, and I'm sure even outside of the U.S., but maybe, you know, take us through that journey and, you know, tell us about Quicken back then and Quicken today. Sure. So I think the core concept is pretty basic that technology kind of widely used consumer friendly technology, you know, can help people stay on top of their finances and do a better job uh, running their financial lives. And, you know, whether in 2021 or in 1986, many households have the same kind of fundamental issues, which is. They want to make sure that they pay their bills on time and don't have late fees. They want to make sure that they sort of understand their spending and their income and have a reasonable balance 
And to the extent that they can afford to, they're making investments that will achieve their life goals, which could be short term, like saving for a house down payment or sending kids to college or long term, you know, paying for their retirement. And so those underlying needs, you know, of you know, keeping track of money and helping people make good financial decisions are very enduring. And, uh, you know, I think that's been helpful for our company that, you know, we, we've been solving the same problem with evolving technology for a long period of time. The big change in our landscape is that in the mid-90s, until the mid-90s, the only way for a consumer to enlist technology to help them with their finances was with a product like Quicken or Microsoft Money, our competitor at the time, because there wasn't a bank website and there wasn't a bank mobile app. So the world changed a lot in the, the mid-90s as banks began to add website, and then in the 2000s or after the iPhone, when you know, banks began to have really strong mobile apps. And so the role of Quicken evolved when, as that happened, really very much in the mid-90s, which is that Quicken found a new role as solving for people who have what we call multifaceted finances. And the observation was that if I have a simple life and I have one credit card and I have you know, one bank account at Wells Fargo, you know, the Wells Fargo app is going to be great for me. And there's really nothing else I probably need. But by contrast, you know, if I have bank accounts at three banks and I have four credit cards and I have three brokerages and, uh, and then I have a, you know, a rental property and a mortgage of my own house, and a that's the place where things get hairy. And where a third-party product like Quicken can do a really great job of bringing simplicity to complicated finances. So that's the role that we've evolved towards. And that's also the technology that we've built. Today, Quicken Software is able to reach 14,000 financial institutions to collect you know, bank transactions, credit card transactions, broker statements, including transaction history, foreign currency rates, if you care about that, credit reports. And then over eleven, over ten thousand billers, so you can get your, you know, you can get your phone bill or digitally in product, and actually you can pay it with Quicken as well. So we've evolved to be a great place to bring the financial world together simply in one place for people who have multifaceted finances, and that's been a durable need also, just like the the earlier need of some tool to help me use technology to understand how my uh, money comes and goes. So we solved that really well with Quicken, I would say in the, and then in the, probably after Intuit bought Mint in the late 2000s, 2009, I think they kind of took the eye off their ball and stopped, you know, paying as much attention to Quicken. And so, you know, it got a little, little stale, a little dog-eared. And so that was, that was where we had to, you know, fix things up, which we've been doing. But at the same time, would you like me to talk about kind of what we're doing going forward? Because I could I could bridge to that absolutely. or I could stay on this this current topic. No, absolutely, absolutely. So our first challenge as a standalone company after we were divested from Intuit in 2016 was to restore the greatness of this software product that had been around already, you know, for 30 years. And it was just basic block and tackling and you know, putting time and money into Improving the performance, the reliability, the visual quality, the appearance, functionality. And we've been doing that for five years and, and we've seen 30 point NPS gains. And, you know, one of the things we're proudest of is we migrated to a subscription model and our three year renewal rate is well over, it's like 93%. I mean, it's really excellent. So people who are using our product find real value in it. They want to keep using it. So that was the first thing that we did. But 
as we started to think about how we could have a growth company in the 21st century, we had a little bit of an internal debate about whether we should take Quicken, which was a very well-known brand, and try to open that up to bring new users, 21st century, and of course, younger users, you know, into the, into the customer base, or whether we should start with a little bit more of a, a clean sheet of paper. And I think we made the right decision, which was it's a, a blank sheet of paper with a little bit of a letterhead on it. The Quicken brand we brought forward is the sub-brand for Simplify by Quicken because people trust the Quicken brand. And trust is important in financial technology where you know, there are bad guys out there trying to steal your information and do bad things. But the key decision was to start effectively with a clean sheet of paper and say, we know that modern 21st century customers have the same needs that we talked about. They need to pay their bills on time. They need to understand how much money is coming in, how much money is going out, how much they can afford to spend, how much they should save, how they're making progress on their savings. So we knew that those underlying needs were the same, but we also knew that 21st century customers were completely different. Unfortunately, you know, we've been bringing a lot of younger people into our company. We've had an internship program, even when we're kind of in the process of being divested by Intuit, just to make sure that we are hiring engineers who have, you know, 20-something mindset. <laughs> rather than you know, a Quicken mindset. So uh, using them and a wonderful group of product managers, we built Simplify from scratch, leveraging backend technology that you know, Quicken had, but with an entirely new you know, user interface and approach. And what we saw was that a lot of people who used apps, and there are plenty of finance apps out there, didn't quite get what they wanted. And so they would use an app and they would use a spreadsheet because essentially, they didn't want to just bring stuff together. They wanted to bring stuff together in an app and then have a little bit of modeling, not super fancy, but understand what my regular bills are, understand uh, the difference between spending money and saving towards a goal, be able to track multiple goals. And so we developed a feature we're really proud of called the spending plan, which basically says, we're going to give you a picture of your you know, week-to-week, month-to-month finances. And we'll figure out, we can see every two weeks you get a paycheck. We can see that you pay these bills every month. We'll figure that out for you. And then gradually we'll put together this picture of your finances. And then with that as a framework, you can make decisions. You can make decisions about, okay, I get $400 to blow this month, going out for dinner. Or you can say, I have a spending plan to, like I said, do something worthy, like you know, saving up for a down payment or you know, other, other goals or, or some mix of them. And so we think we do that better than anyone else. And uh, that's one of the reasons we think we, we got the you know, best budgeting app award from the New York Times Wirecutter about a year after we launched. And uh, you know, we're continuing to improve the product. Recently, we added the ability to get bills, uh, the electronic bills, that, just like Quicken does, but built into this model where you don't have to tell it, it auto discovers your bill. And then if you notice you get a Comcast bill every month, you can say, oh, this is an online bill. And then maybe you get the PDF as well. So very low friction to use, but adding some insight and some modeling to the simple project of you know, bringing your data together in, in one place. So right now, we feel like we have really strong products for our traditional users with Quicken, which has been improved, great NPS, good reliability, and you know, very robust products, and then simplify solving really well for a new generation of customers. So we, we had a strategy exercise last Summer. It's just like you told me that, you know, the podcast curiously ended up being benefiting from COVID. I would say in a way, our strategy process you know, benefited from COVID because we, 
we had you know, a little bit of extra. There's everybody had some extra commute time, <laughs> and so we were able, even though we we were doing it from home, to have a a strategy process for the whole company, which was very broad because we weren't constrained by size of conference room. Uh, so very broad, inclusive, and very effective in coming up with the new vision for our company. And the new vision for for our our company is that. Quicken does three things. Quicken and Simplify do three things for our customers. Absolutely. One is it knows me. And to me, knows me means reaching out into the financial world, the digital financial world, bringing stuff all together in kind of a normalized, in a comprehensible way. So that's part one, know me. Part two, advise me. And advise me is where we have work to do. So I gave you a simplistic example of how Simplify understands your salary and your, your regular expenses and can help you get a sense of what you can or should save. But we want to go beyond that. We had a we had a workshop with some computer science with a computer science professor just 10 days ago, and we're just getting started in trying to figure out you know, how to harness you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence to take the very comprehensive data, not just on me, but on people like me in the Quicken Cloud Services, you know data repository to make great recommendations for, you know, for people. And then the third part is Quicken and Simplify know me, they advise me, let's reach out into the real world and make it happen. So sometimes we call that orchestration, that's the fancy word, but make it happen is the way to think about it, which is if the customer on the basis of kind of the, the, the knowledge and the advice, you know, wants to increase her savings rate or move money from one credit, you know, for, pay down one credit card rather than the other, or make an asset allocation change in her investments. We want to be able to expand our outbound connections so that Quicken can interact with financial institutions where the money is stored and make stuff happen in the real world. Make it happen, we do on a small scale today with our Quicken Bill Manager product and service where after retrieving a bill, we can kind of reach out through web automation and cause the bill to be paid. And we envision you know, many future integrations along those lines where Quicken, you know, with the with the at the request of the customer is reaching out into the real world and making it happen. So that's basically, in a few words, the vision we have. We have a you know a well-established Quicken product, a very promising, fast-growing, simplified product, serving the core problem of understanding finances and applying the framework of know me, bring it all together, advise me, apply modern machine learning AI to advise, and then reach out into the real world and make it happen. So that's what we're doing as a company. And maybe you can see that feels, you know, different from perhaps the image people had of Quicken as, you know, an old-fashioned product that wasn't going anywhere. Right. No, absolutely. And then, Eric, I want to go back to, you know, this specific strategic decision that you had to take, you know, maybe half a decade ago. I think it would be interesting to hear about your management approach and how did you build consensus or how did you approach making that decision, right? How did you work with your executive team? And from your point of view, why did you think you guys were successful in the ultimate decision? So you're talking about the decision to have a clean sheet of paper for Simplify? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, great question. Interesting. And I should start by saying my prejudice had been that there was one quicken and everything would be monolithic and you know, it could be a Swiss army knife and solve for me and solve for my kids at the same time. So the reason we did something different is we had a product leader uh, named Kristen Dillard who thought about the opportunity and 
I don't know quite what process it was, but she came to the conclusion that was not the way to go. She came to the conclusion, you know, we should have a we should have a separate product. We didn't have a name for it. We called it Acme. So, so in the early days, but the, the word Acme meant it's not the same as Quicken. We said we we're going to fork it conceptually from Quicken. And the only thing I would take credit for personally, because as I said, that Acme was by no means my idea, was having a company environment where people felt sort of free to have a different idea and, uh, and try to persuade people and then be successful. I think we inherited many good things from the Intuit culture, as well as leaving behind some baggage when we were divested. And one of the things that we inherited goes all the way back to Intuit's founder, Scott Cook, which is to be very data-driven in our decisions and you know, try to be unemotional and fact-based in coming to business conclusions. And so because of that, I think you know, Kristen felt you know, sort of it was reasonable, safe, and effective to advocate a, a varying point of view. So that, that's how that happened. But we are fortunate to have kind of a, an opinionated, vocal product leader who is willing to think things through and, and, and have that point of view, as well as an environment that you know, tolerated and ultimately encouraged that. It always comes down to people, right? Having the best people. Yeah. So how about your recent, relatively recent decision to switch to a SaaS subscription model, right? Uh, how did you come to that decision and what was the, the client reaction like? Yeah. So that decision, that decision was pretty obvious to me, I would say. And partly because I had had experience as an investor in some businesses migrating to the subscription model. Adaptive Insight, as I mentioned, was a financial planning, SaaS-based financial planning tool. So kind of NetSuite does the accounting, and Adaptive Insight does the, you know, the forward-looking financial. They had entered the market in 2003, which was pretty early days for SaaS, but you know, they made steady, steady progress, and the mindset of their customers had changed. So as a board member in that company, I saw them breaking down the barriers and you know, seeing the benefits of having a SaaS model. And one of the most obvious benefits, you know, was, you know, being able to deploy the, the software automatically to all the customers with, you know, without lags. And at the same time, you know, when I returned to Intuit in 2010, you know, I had visibility into the non-SaaS world of, you know, QuickBooks desktop side by side with the SaaS world of, you know, of uh, QuickBooks online. And, you know, it was, it was abundantly evident that from a development point of view, from a product delivery point of view, companies could deliver more effectively with the SaaS model than, than with desktop and all the sort of cruft and complexity and downloads and patches. So on the one hand, you know, I'd seen customer behavior changing. On the other hand, I'd seen development teams kind of breathing easier because they didn't have to support desktop clients, many versions of desktop clients. And then I, I saw that at Quicken, we were faced with our Windows product with supporting eight versions at once because we went we supported three prior annual versions for the U.S. and Canada, and then we had two we had a we had a Mac version. So we for a relatively small company with you know, around 100 people, you know, supporting eight or ten individual products in a world where security changes you know are constant and you know and we have to update connectivity. It was just it was brutal and it wasn't good for customers. So. The combination of the customer acceptance, the more effective delivery, led us to essentially make a deal with our customers. And the deal we made to our customers is, if you'll let us go to this more efficient delivery model, honestly, it's going to cost you a little bit more because you're going to have to buy Quicken every year, so it's going to cost less than it used to. Whereas in the past, you could buy it every one, two, or three years. But we're going to invest 
kind of the the efficiency in doing a lot better with the product. And we're going to make it, we're going to fix all the bugs. And there was a big backlog of bugs. And, you know, we fixed a ton of bugs. We're going to improve the performance. It's going to look better. It's going to work better. It's going to have a durable future. And also we're going to improve the customer care. We had lousy customer care under Intuit. Today we have great customer care. And, you know, we're one of the few places where, you know, you, I mean, you dial the number right now, 650-250-1900. And maybe if your podcast listeners will try this, you know, we'll typically answer the phone in a couple of minutes, uh, you know, which is faster than Hertz and United by a wide margin, <laughs> even though we're, you know, we're a high volume software company. And so that was the deal we made. We said, you're going to pay a little bit more, but we're going to deliver a lot more. And if you ask our customers today, they'll say, Quicken did what it said. They're delivering a better solution for us. And uh, it's been a real win-win. And we, you know, on the app-based product, uh, Simplify, we didn't face exactly the same choice. There's obviously not an equivalent license model, but we did face the question of whether we should use freemium as some of the competitors have done or have a a paid subscription to, to the Simplify product. And, you know, we were thoughtful about that. And what we concluded was that, for what we're doing, which is to, to solve for multifaceted finances, even for this younger set of uh, customers, the value proposition made sense that you pay a little, you know, three or four dollars a month. And, you know, we don't spam you. We don't throw up ads. You know, we're not selling your data. You pay us for good software. We write good software and support it. And by the way, you get human support, even phone on, on Simplify as well. And so that's it's a different model than premium with uh, limited support. Uh, and ads, but we think it's right for the kind of customers we're solving for who have maybe a little bit more than average you know financial complexity in their lives and uh, you know want a you know an uncluttered environment to do their financial work. Those were two business decisions that were really delivered uh, really I would say decided by a combination of an internal factors, but most importantly the customer factors. So Eric, having been in the fintech space, since 86, right? I'm sure you pay a lot of attention to all the other innovations that are coming up, you know, almost on a, on a daily basis yeah. these days. So when you look at the fintech space, are there some particular areas that excite you or the particular verticals that you're paying more attention to? Um, there's a lot of great stuff going on in fintech right now. Two that are fairly close to us that are interesting are kind of the movement towards open banking initiatives with some, I'd say, some encouragement from the CFPP, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I'm sure you know, you know, Europe has sweeping, European Union has sweeping laws that make banks required to provide access, not just to data, but to services, including payment services. And I don't think that's happening anytime soon in the US, but I think kind of the, some of the ideas across the Atlantic and you know, many forward-looking financial institutions see the benefit of doing it to some degree, even without regulatory compulsion. And benefit is their customers get advantage for a, you know, an ecosystem of connected services that build on rather than undermine the value of the, the core financial accounts. So we're cautiously optimistic that will spread. And that on the one hand, it'll improve what's been a sore point in Quicken and all the competing products for decades, which is the data connectivity is in some cases built on web automation, which is a, a nice way of saying, you know, a robot logging into a website. That's a really bad way to collect data for a finance app. 
And so the industry, I think, is slowly moving away from that with permission-based APIs for reading information. And so I think that's one of the better overflows of the open banking ideas from, from Europe. What we're optimistic will happen, however, in addition, is that some thought leaders in the FI world will open up two-way APIs, APIs to make it happen, and that they'll derive value and the uh, ecosystem will derive value as well. And again, you know, borrowing intellectually from what's now possible on continental Europe. So that's one area we're super excited about. Another area is an initiative being sponsored by the, the Federal Reserve called FedNow. You probably know that the Federal Reserve is kind of the co-operator of the ACH network. So payments in the U.S. work, I mean, other than you know, cash and checks, which are declining, there's card-based payments, which are ubiquitous, fast, and expensive. And there's ACH, which is ubiquitous, slow, and cheap. But th there is no ubiquitous, fast, and cheap yet. And FedNow has the promise of being, of being that. And so we're actually kind of working. There was a task force that I participated in personally as a company, and we're engaging closely with the, the Federal Reserve Product Management Group on this and uh, you know, looking for the right partner financial institutions to start piloting some work. But the vision is that you know, with appropriate security and authentication services, fintech services or bank services could you know, initiate money movement freely and securely and, and instantly anywhere in the U.S. between financial institutions. And uh, it would just take friction out of many of the things that you know, are either slow or expensive to do today. And it'll be a while. I mean, the project's been going for five years. And I think that the launch date, even in pilot, is still a couple of years away. But I think that has the potential to radically change how well finances work in our country. I'm really looking forward to taking advantage and being an early adopter. So those are a couple of areas which are exciting to me personally and to our company. That is really, really interesting. And one of the things I like about this podcast is that we get to cover fintech globally and kind of see yeah. what's going on in other places. And you mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, Europe being a pioneering open banking and, you know, kind of reminds me yeah. of, of a place like Brazil where open banking is also being adopted with, you know, a lot of similarities from the UK. Mm -hmm. um, but even with real-time payments as well, they launched uh, something called PIX last year, and that's been widely successful. So let's hope that also uh, happens here. And it doesn't require the EU to make, you know, the stuff happen. I mean, the UK, no longer in the EU, has their own faster payment system. And I'm pretty sure Australia has done something quite similar to the UK faster payment. So I think it, it can happen globally. And I think that'll help because, I mean, the US, you know, sometimes needs a little prodding from global competitors to, to move in oh, certain yeah. areas. So <laughs> it'll, it's helpful that Brazil and Australia and continental Europe and UK are doing these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Eric, I, I have a, you know, final question and it's it's wrapped in kind of your your reflections from Intuit, but also maybe lessons learned for entrepreneurs. As I was mentioning, we have quite a few builders and entrepreneurs that, that tune in to this podcast. And maybe you could share some of the lessons that you learned a long career into it, which you know went from four people to several thousand, right? I've been asked questions like this from time to time. And the thing I really like to talk about is the value of perseverance. Um, I think I mentioned the company, uh, Adaptive Insights, that they started in 2003 with web-based financial planning when nobody else was doing it. 
it took them a long time, you know, 15 years, you know, before they got to a couple hundred million dollars of revenue and a big exit. But they knew what they were trying to do, and they just kept executing year after year after year, making incremental improvements. And uh, ultimately, it paid out. And we saw the same thing happen at uh, Intuit. So QuickBooks Online, the web version of QuickBooks, is a fabulously successful product today with you know millions and millions of, of users. And it started actually in, I think it launched in 2000. And uh, when I returned to Intuit in 2010, the number of users was, I don't know, 30, 50,000 small businesses using it after 10 years. But Intuit believed in it, and perhaps they'd been early, you know, in 2000, you know, doing online accounting. But they, you know, they continued to invest, you know, year after year in that product. And the first 10 years were not glorious, but starting in 2010 and up until, I mean, the last 10 years have been fabulous. It's been a huge driver of the growth of the company. So some of these things take a while, I guess. And uh, the companies that have the perseverance, the persistence to keep, you know, keep hacking away, I think you know, often end up being very successful. And I think that's certainly our vision of Quicken is not that we're an overnight success, but, you know, we're a durable success. And, you know, we follow the long-term trends and, you know, continue in investing against them and create value in, in that way. That's probably my number one lesson. Uh, of course, it helps to have funding or a business model that allows you to be uh, <laughs> a persevering investor. And that's not always possible, or at least. Uh, so Eric, I, I lied. We have one final question, but this one's not on business. This is about your hobbies. And I was reading a little bit and and some things that stood out were, you know, piano, tennis, and helicopters, right? Sounds like you have uh, varying types of hobbies. Maybe you can tell us a, a bit about those. Yeah, the uh, I'd say I'm worst at piano. I'm uh, laboring through a Beethoven piano sonata that I'll perform to a small audience of my fellow students in about a month. So that that's not my forte. That's that's actually the <laughs> that's perseverance at work. You know, zero talent and perseverance yield a modest you know a modest degree of success. I'm a pretty good helicopter pilot. I started flying uh, Robinson helicopters uh, with the small R22, which is sort of the motorcycle of helicopters. In uh, 1996, I moved to an R44, which is a four-place piston-engine helicopter in 2000. And uh, I recently got the R66, which is their slick five-passenger turbine. And it's that wonderful helicopter. And uh, actually, really, it's the tribute to modern electronics, you know, what the nav systems are on a modern aircraft like that. And it's just a really, it's just a really fun aircraft to, to fly. We have a country property that I can land on. So that's, you know, that's. That's kind of helpful and gives me a mission, but it's just uh, you get a phenomenal view of the landscape and it feels safe to me because you land a small airplane at 60 or 70 miles per hour and it's arrowing. You land a helicopter at one mile an hour and it just feels safe. So it may seem unsafe to you, but to me, it seems like the only way to fly. I'm definitely jealous. And uh, you're probably the first guest we've had that can fly a helicopter as far as I know. We've had a couple of airplane uh, aficionados, but not helicopters. Well, Eric, thank you again for joining. Fantastic conversation. And, and congrats on on a wonderful career uh, and, and amazing success. I definitely look forward to following everything to come out of Quicken. And, and you know, thanks again for joining us. Great. We're excited about where we are and we think we have a great vision to execute on. And Look forward to serving many, many customers in the decade ahead. So thanks for uh, the airtime. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 